0: This week, Marble Ridge questions legality of Neiman Marcus transactions in letter to board, Claire settles with Oak Tree, Pacific Drilling adjourns disclosure statement hearing after equity commitment fee denied. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reark's offices in New York City.
1: And I'm Stephen Opper. This past week marked the 10th anniversary of the Lehman bankruptcy, so our director of research, Mark Fisher, sits down with my co-host and legal analyst, Karen Lung, to describe the latest, what we should still expect 10 years later. It's Sunday, September 23rd. Neiman Marcus surprised the market this week when it released fourth quarter results. In the release, the company disclosed that it had affected an organizational change in which it transferred entities that house the company's My Teresa business to parent entity Neiman Marcus Group Incorporated. Entities are unrestricted and do not guarantee the company's debt. On Friday morning, Marble Ridge Capital disclosed a letter sent to the Neiman Marcus Board dated september eighteenth, quote, expressing concern that the company may be in default under its bond indentures as a result of several improper transactions, including the My Teresa entity's redesignation in twenty seventeen, and subsequent transfer this week, which was made quote, without any consideration to Neiman Marcus Group Incorporated. Back to earnings, Neiman reported a 2.3% comp store sales increase and a 16.4% increase in adjusted EBITDA. According to the company, all Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman stores were four-wall EBITDA positive. The company did not take questions during its earnings call. The first time in recent years, it has not done so.
0: This week, the Clare Stores debtors announced a global settlement with second lien noteholder Oaktree and the RSA parties. Oaktree has opposed the debtors' restructuring process from the very outset of the Chapter 11 cases. The settlement would increase the second lien cash recovery pool to just under $42 million from the previous $34 million. The settlement also includes contingent value rights for second lien holders with the potential to receive up to an additional $16 million. According to the plan, the initial cash portion would increase second lien recoveries to 18% of their $232 million allowed claim. Including the CVRs, the settlement increases the recovery potential of the second lien claimants to 25%. The CVRs would be structured in a way that entitles second lien claim holders to a pro rata distribution of up to approximately $16.3 million in up to four equal installments based on reorganized clairs achieving certain milestones. Additionally, Oaktree was allowed to come into the debtors' pre-petition RSA as a supporting party and will be permitted to participate in the new money rights offering on account of its first lien claims. Judge Mary Walrath confirmed the plan on Friday morning.
1: At a lively and at times heated Pacific drilling hearing on Tuesday, Judge Michael Wiles threw a wrench in the debtor's otherwise uncontested agenda by taking issue with, and ultimately declining to approve, the full 8% backstop fee in favor of the ad hoc group of debt holders in connection with the debtor's equity commitment motion. After hearing extensive testimony from Daniel Salentano of Evercore, the debtor's investment banker, Judge Wiles concluded that based on the record, he would only be willing to approve the payment of an 8% backstop fee, quote, on what's not already committed, as part of the debtor's $500 million equity issuance. This means that the debtors would not be authorized to pay the 8% commitment premium in connection with the commitments made by the ad hoc group, Quantum Pacific, or the reserve parties. Additionally, Judge Wiles said that in order to resolve the equal treatment problem that would be, quote, deadly to the debtor's plan, the $100 million ad hoc group private placement will need to be made open to anyone who is presently excluded, but who wants to become a reserve party. The court left open the possibility that it might be amenable to a smaller fee. But when Andrew Rosenberg of Paul Weiss, counsel of the ad hoc committee, asked if the court had a number in mind, Judge Weil said, quote, I'm not here to negotiate it. Rosenberg requested a brief adjournment. He explained that since the backstop fee was a significant component of the mediated global settlement, the ad hoc group would need to decide whether things are, quote, back to square one, or whether it and the debtor should instead return to the court with additional evidence in support of the reduced commitment premium. The hearing was adjourned to Tuesday, September 25th.
0: On Friday morning, the PROMESA Oversight Board announced it had finalized the amended plan support agreement with Puerto Rico's government, Cofina, Monoline's senior and junior bondholders, and Bonistas del Patio. The Permesa Oversight Board said it obtained the support of significant Kofina bondholders Aurelius and Monarch Alternative Management. Additional parties include certain members of the ad hoc group of Go bondholders, who have agreed, quote, not to oppose confirmation of the Cafina plan and the compromise to be approved in the Commonwealth case. Also in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Tuesday entered an order denying the motion by the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors seeking to enforce the automatic stay under the bankruptcy code, as well as the court's June 2017 order confirming the application of the automatic stay. Judge Swain concludes that, quote, The Committee's argument that Section 362A precludes the GDB restructuring absent relief from the automatic stay fails on its merits. Also on Tuesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board's Special Claims Committee, established to act on the conclusions of the Cobra and Kim debt investigation, is gearing up for an expeditious process of determining what causes of action to pursue, focusing on potential actions in the Title III cases. The Committee is looking to quote bring in money to help the restructuring process," members said during a public hearing on the probe's findings in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And finally, Puerto Rico Senate Vice President Larry Selhammer announced Monday that the Southern States Energy Board rejected passage of a resolution calling for a 10-year waiver by the federal government of Jones Act requirements to allow liquefied natural gas to be brought to Puerto Rico on foreign flagged vessels. The resolution would have called on Congress to consider legislation to permanently carve out energy commodities from Jones Act shipping requirements, that goods from U.S. ports be carried to Puerto Rico on U.S.-built and U.S.-flagged vessels. Silhamer, who said that he had expected the resolution to be approved during the Southern States Energy Board's annual meeting in Mississippi this week, said the scuttling of the resolution was due to lobbying against it by the U.S. maritime industry.
1: Other top-read stories of the week were... Number one, new coverage. Acosta eyes receivables as potential collateral security for 2019 rollover refi.
0: Number two, new coverage. Lynette Company working with Kirkland and Ellis following announced loss of distribution agreement.
1: Number three, Steinhoff lender presentation includes Mattress Firm September 20th business update.
0: And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead.
2: All right. Thank you, Karen. And greetings, y'all. Last week of the month was tap on the shoulder time for some companies who are facing forbearance expirations towards the end of the week, but a whole lot of significant events before that. Starting on Monday, September 4th, with earnings from Danaos, the shipping firm headquartered in Athens and Cyprus. You know, when you think about it, the Greeks gave us not only philosophy, literature, drama, theology, and architecture, but the whole notion of taking a nice long cruise, which I suppose dates back to the days of the Trojan Wars and the long journey home of Odysseus and his fleet. Dan Ose's earnings calls on Tuesday, September 25th, which also brings a DS hearing in Pacific Drilling, a Settlement Hearing in First Energy, and if that ain't enough for you lawyers, a Chancery Preliminary Injunction Hearing in Monotronics. Wednesday, September 26th, is like last week bereft of any compelling event in the restructuring world. However, keeping with our long ocean voyage idea, on this day in 1580, the great Sir Francis Drake finished his circumnavigation of the globe, arriving in England with the holds of his ship stuffed with treasure liberated from Spain. So that should give you all time to gird yourselves for Thursday, September 27th, which brings a disclosure statement in hearing in tops and an omnibus hearing and a preliminary injunction hearing in the fung matter in toys. There's also earnings and calls from Gas and Rite Aid. And Friday... The aforementioned forbearance expirations, PetraQuest, related to its second lien notes due 2021, most of which are held by McKay and Core, and Dixie Electric, related to its term loan, Mudrick holds most of that. Lender advisors for Dixie are working with Ann and Davis Polk, while in the company's corner are PJT and Simpson Thatcher. And wait, there's one more. Westmoreland Coal, their forbearance expiration expires on Saturday. The company said in August they would be undertaking an asset marketing process. And that's all I got. Karen, back to you.
0: Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more.
1: This week, Mark Fisher sits down with Karen to discuss Lehman Brothers and what remains of this 10 year old bankruptcy.
3: Thanks, Stephen. So I am back again with uh, Karen Lung, who is uh, in, in addition to being co-host of uh, our podcast. She is also a legal analyst covering among it amongst many names, Lehman Brothers. Previously, Karen uh, was with um, the bankruptcy and restructuring group at, at Deckert. Uh, So we're covering, as I said, Lehman Brothers today. Last weekend marked the 10-year anniversary of the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, which filed for Chapter 11 protection on September 15th, 2008. It was the biggest bankruptcy case in history. Those were some of the most uh, chaotic times. If I can reflect um, uh, on the financial crisis, uh, for those of us who were in the investment industry at the time, we shall never forget that time. And we know we're we're not just going to talk about uh, the past here today, uh, since for those of uh, you who no longer are following, believe it or not, the case is actually still going on. Uh, So today we're going to discuss uh, the first decade of the Lehman cases, uh, some of the landmark events, what's been accomplished, and of course, what the key takeaways are.
0: Thanks, Mark. Yes, the Lehman cases are still ones to watch 10 years after the bankruptcy filing. Every year, representatives of the estates of Lehman Brothers Holding, Inc. and Lehman Brothers, Inc. give a presentation to the bankruptcy court called the State of the Estate. This year, the State of the Estate presentation happened this past Monday, which was the first business day after the 10-year anniversary of the Lehman bankruptcy. The key parties in the case, as well as Judge Shelley Chapman, who presides over the Lehman cases in the bankruptcy court for the Southern District of New York, Offered reflections on what's been accomplished as well as a status update on where things stand. Now, Judge Chapman remarked at the hearing that when she mentions the case to her 91-year-old mother, her mother says, Is that still going on? I'm sure. I'm sure that's the reaction of many folks who don't follow the proceedings closely, but there is still active litigation today. And of course, the trajectory of the Lehman cases was shaped in large part by what happened in the first months of the financial crisis in 2008.
3: Yes, uh, that, that's right. And um, you know, if we look back at that time, it was really a momentous and chaotic time. Uh, September 2008 saw Merrill Lynch's sale to Bank of America, Federal Reserve's takeover of AIG for $85 billion, the conversion of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley to bank holding companies, the Washington Mutual bankruptcy filing, and Congress rejecting the first bailout package. In a recent interview, former, James, former Judge James Peck, who oversaw the Lehman cases before Judge Chapman, said that the emergency 363 sale hearing that took place at the end of the first week of the Lehman case on September 19th, 2008, was, quote, probably the most dramatic, intense bankruptcy court hearing in history. So let's now fast forward to where we are now. As an initial question, Karen, uh, what is the purpose of the Lehman Estates at this point? Uh, Lehman Brothers no longer exists uh, in the sense that Lehman is no longer the global investment bank from the pre-2008 period. Uh, many of Lehman's assets were sold off during the bankruptcy, like the Newburger Berman asset management business being sold to private equity firms in 2008. So what what's going on now?
0: Well, Mark, today Lehman Brothers holding Inc. is the plan administrator who has the mission of winding down, selling, and otherwise liquidating the assets of the debtors and the entities that they control in Chapter 11. So just as you pointed out, it's no longer the operating entities that you knew from the pre-2008 period. And now the US Bankruptcy Court oversees both the LBHI, Chapter 11 case, that's the bankruptcy case for Lehman's parent and holding company, and the CIPA, liquidation case of Lehman Brothers Inc., or LBI, and LBI was the broker-dealer entity and its case is overseen by a Securities Investor Protection Act or SIPA trustee, James Giddens. And with all that's happened in both cases in the last decade, we're going to focus today on giving a very high-level overview of where things stand and drawing out themes from the cases.
3: Great. So let's start with, uh, with, with that overview. Um, most of the claims in both the LBHI and LBI cases have been resolved. Out of 1.2 trillion of claims filed against LBHI, all but, all but about 1.4 billion have been resolved. LBHI has distributed $125 billion to date, and LBI has distributed uh, $120 billion. So we'll discuss uh, the details more later, but allowed LBI customer claims have received 100% recovery, and LBI unsecured creditors have received about 40%. Senior unsecured claims of LBHI have received about 44% to date. So as we draw closer to the end of these proceedings, it's worth thinking about whether bankruptcy is the right tool to deal with this with a crisis like the one that faced Lehman in 2008. Specifically, uh, Karen, you think is it right for large financial institutions facing liquidations?
0: You know, Mark, I read a recent interview where former Judge Peck responded to a question about whether bankruptcy is the right place for a large financial institution to liquidate, and he said, "These are his words now." There really has to be a better way to deal with the failure of a significant financial institution and to avoid what is now 10 years of litigation. He said that, uh, quote, a more ideal form of resolution would be Dodd-Frank or something like it. And he went on to comment, either regulators are responsible for this or courts are responsible for this, questioning whether uh, the court is really the right place to deal with a scenario like Lehman. It's also useful to consider the trajectory of the bankruptcy case somewhat distinctly from the larger causes of the financial crisis and the bankruptcy filing itself. In the recent 10-year anniversary hearing, former Judge Peck also said that even during the most chaotic times of the crisis, the bankruptcy court in Lehman acted as what he called a global town square for creditor constituencies and the debtors' estates to come together expressed their frustrations and reached what he called a remarkably consensual chapter 11 plan that was confirmed in December 2011. Uh, Brian Marcel, Lehman's former CEO, also said at the hearing that the bankruptcy process really worked for Lehman and he commented, if there was a hero in the case, it was the bankruptcy process. So it's an interesting dynamic where these players are aware of the economic harms of the crisis but they still consider the bankruptcy case a success under the circumstances.
3: So now where we are in the, in the case, there's two mega cases essentially we alluded to before, LBHI and LBI, both of which are in liquidation phase. Uh, What's driving recovery levels is the monetization of those assets, the claims that creditors assert against the estates, and the claims that the estate estates assert against other parties, which could potentially result in litigation recoveries, uh, for example, that bring cash into the estate for eventual distribution to creditors. Another thing uh, that to keep in mind is the complex web of obligations that the Lehman entities owe to each other across the world, meaning LBHI and Lehman Brothers International Europe, for example, could appear in the LBI case and assert claim, uh, customer claims against the LBI estate. Lehman entities file various proceedings in 16 jurisdictions around the world, and inter-estate disputes have played a big role.
0: Right, and it's worth spending some time on the distinction between the Chapter 11 case and the SIPA case. Let's talk a little bit about the LBI SIPA case first. When a brokerage firm is closed, at times the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, a federally created nonprofit corporation, steps in and works to return customers cash, stock, and other securities. Uh, other major Sipa cases from this period include Madoff and MF Global, for example. Now, James Giddens, the LBI Sipa trustee, was appointed on September 18, 2008 and worked to return assets to the customers instead of liquidating the assets and giving the customers a portion of the proceeds from the sale, the way that you would expect in a Chapter 7 liquidation. The trustee also monetized assets over time and in the LBI case the allowed customer claims actually recovered 100% with the trustee distributing approximately 106 billion dollars to over 111,000 customers so the LBI customer estate was closed in December 2017 although the general estate remains open
3: yeah and and let's look at you know how this started with, with LBI. Uh, many listeners uh, probably remember that most of LBI's assets were sold to, to Barclays under a deal that it negotiated right before the bankruptcy filing. Uh, so at this point, uh, customer claims have been fully satisfied and secured. Priority and administrative creditors also received 100% distributions. General creditors recently received their 6th interim distribution of $170 million, bringing the cumulative payout on allowed, unsecured general creditor claims to approximately only 40%, which the CIPA trustee said far exceeds initial expectations. Uh, in the most recent state of the estate report for LBI, Giddens said that the the S- uh, SIPA case had entered the final phase of the wind down. Um, and those were his exact words. The only outstanding dispute for the general estate is a single consolidated adversary proceeding addressing 381 claims filed by former LBI employees seeking payment of deferred compensation.
0: Right. And in that report, the SIPA trustee also explained that the work ahead, left now, is resolving uh, that remaining claims dispute, marshalling remaining legacy assets and closing the estate with a final distribution. The trustee said this could happen in the next year or so, depending on the schedule for appeals related to that uh, deferred compensation claims dispute. The most recent update also said that while the LBI liquidation has now entered a phase of substantial completion, it remains a mega case.
3: Yes, and that is uh, one because uh, the LBI state still has over four, $544 million in assets on hand subject to reserves and internal controls, and the trustee maintains reserves of approximately $265 million for those disputed deferred compensation claims. Giddens noted that future interim and final distributions to general and secured creditors will be made from any other assets the trustee may recover, which may or may not be material. Specifically, uh, future general and secured creditor distributions are principally, quote, quote, principally contingent on the outcome of that deferred compensation claim dispute, as well as, quote, future recoveries from antitrust and securities class action litigations. The end is in sight for the LBI case, and the SIPA trustee said in a statement to the court that the liquidation has been, quote, remarkably successful.
0: Uh, It's fair to say that recoveries in the LBI case are much higher than were expected in 2008, but we should also keep in mind how the circumstances of the crisis shaped the case. The SIPA trustee said that the emergency transaction between LBHI and Barclays in the days and hours before the LBI liquidation case began happened in what he called the Fog of Lehman. The report also said that the Barclays transaction provided a number of benefits to the LBI estate. But the CIPA trustee also pointed out that ultimately, the Barclays transaction, quote, had a significant negative impact on the LBI general estate.
3: So let's look at the overall timeline. Uh, After the LBI liquidation began, the trustee pursued litigation in bankruptcy court, the District Court, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and the U.S. Supreme Court for over six years relating to whether Barclays had purchased certain assets and assumed certain obligations as part of the transaction. In June 2015, the parties reached a global settlement. settlement. The trustee paid Barclays approximately $1.3 billion in margin assets and released $583 million from the Barclays litigation reserve to LBI's general estate, allowing the trustee to make a third interim distribution to general creditors. In the latest report, the trustee said that overall, the Barclays transaction transferred quote, nearly $8 billion to Barclays that would have been available to general creditors.
0: Now, let's turn to the Lehman Brothers Holdings, Inc. case, which includes the other entities besides the broker-dealer entity and is more complex as a result. The latest State of the Estate presentation from the plan administrator said that the plan administrator has distributed approximately $8 billion since LBHI's last status update, uh, and that last status update happened in... August 2017, for a total of $124.6 billion of cumulative distributions since emergence from bankruptcy. And uh, now the estate has approximately $4 billion of remaining assets, mostly cash, which excludes potential litigation recoveries and approximately $1.4 billion of unresolved claims. Also, LBHI has announced that October 4th, is the scheduled date for the next distribution, which is the 16th distribution in the case. The plan administrator uh, typically releases a notice ahead of the distribution date that states the dollar amounts and claim percentages that are being paid out on a class-by-class basis at each debtor. So that's something to look out for in the coming weeks.
3: Yeah, and, and the last couple of years actually have seen intense LBHI litigation in several key settlements, uh, despite the fact that the LBHI Chapter 11 plan was confirmed in 2011. Uh, so to be clear, the resolution of these disputes frees up estate cash for future distributions because the plan administrator had to maintain reserves for large asserted claims. I also see that in the notice for the last distribution, which happened on April 5th, the recovery rate for for senior unsecured claims at LBHI, they're up to about 44%. Uh, It's more than double the projected recovery rate of 21% in the debtor's disclosure statement, which was filed in August of 2011.
0: Right. And many of these disputes involved the large derivatives claims held by the so-called big banks. Those are banks like Credit Suisse and Citibank against the estates, as well as residential mortgage-backed securities that Lehman previously bought and sold. A decade later, the court is adjudicating disputes that are directly tied to the events of September 2008, looking into subjects like the reasonableness of trade closeouts by counterparties on derivatives contracts, and the review of tens of thousands of loan files. And what we've seen in the past couple of years is pursuit of litigation and eventual negotiated resolutions of those large disputes.
3: So Karen, what are some of those recent resolutions?
0: Well, just taking a look at the past couple of years, um, from the beginning of 2017, in February 2017, the court approved a settlement between LBHI, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, and JP Morgan, who was Lehman's largest secured creditor. The settlement resulted in a $797.5 million cash payment from JP Morgan to LBHI. Then, in March 2017, LBHI settled with QVT Financial and Quintessence Fund, uh, and QVT had asserted over $265 million of derivatives and guarantee claims. In April 2017, Federal Home Loan Bank of New York settled all claims related to the Lehman bankruptcy and agreed to pay $70 million to the Lehman Estates. In October 2017, the bankruptcy court approved the estate's global settlement of Citibank's derivatives claims. Under the settlement, the estate recovered $1.75 billion and Citibank retained $0.35 billion of the over $2 billion in cash Lehman deposited with Citibank prior to the bankruptcy. In March 2018, the court entered an order settling the claims of the private label RMBS trustees on account uh, uh, of all but one of the covered loan trusts, the amount of $2.38 billion. And that happened after uh, the parties had already engaged in a 23-day estimation trial. In July 2018, the court approved LBHI's settlement of the Credit Suisse derivatives claims. This was a big one. Under the settlement, Credit uh, Credit Suisse's seven derivatives claims against primary obligors were allowed in the aggregate amount of $385 million, Uh, so that's a reduction of the asserted claims by approximately $800 million. Also, the LBHI guarantee claims were reduced by approximately $800 million as well to an allowed claim of $364 million. And this marked the end of the big banks litigation in the case, a major milestone.
3: So obviously a lot of activity uh, there over the last uh, couple of years. So Karen, as you look at you know some of these settlements and rulings, what sort of precedents do you think were set for other cases?
0: Well, of course, the circumstances of the 2008 crash and the Lehman bankruptcy were unique. But we can also apply the principles of the case law coming out of the Lehman case more broadly. For example, you could take a look at Judge Chapman's decision in the RMBS estimation proceeding as a really useful data point in the valuation of RMBS claims. At issue in the dispute were more than 70,000 RMBS loans, which the RMBS trustees said should be estimated at over $11 billion, but the court ultimately estimated a $2.38 billion claim amount which was advocated by LBHI. And that $2.38 billion was a floor that had previously been agreed to in a settlement between the parties. Um, So how do you deal with valuing over 70,000 loans and Lehman's alleged breaches of the mortgage loan sale and assignment agreements? The parties had agreed ahead of time not to use statistical sampling to deal with the large number of loans. And uh, in the opinion, the court looked closely at the loan review process undertaken by the RMBS trustees, and Judge Chapman found that it had many defects, including because the trustees didn't sample, but they did use a number of what they called exemplar loans in an attempt to indicate the characteristics of the loan population. And ultimately, the court rejected the trustees' use of exemplar loans. In the judge's words, the exemplar loans were not on the whole, exemplary. Um, Judge Chapman also looked at recovery rates in comparable RMBS settlements, including in other proceedings involving JP Morgan, Citigroup, ResCAP, Countrywide, and Washington Mutual, all familiar names, and concluded that LBHI's 11.2% recovery rate was on the high end compared to those other settlements. So I wouldn't be surprised if the analysis undertaken by the court was an important reference point in future RMBS loan disputes.
3: And uh, going forward, what what are the potential sources of recovery here? Uh, The plan administrator said in the most recent update that future distributions are largely dependent on the resolution of legal matters in foreign jurisdictions, including the UK, Switzerland, Germany, India and Spain. LBHI said that. It could take years for these matters to wind their way through legal and administrative proceedings in foreign jurisdictions. Quote, the remaining major matters in the case relate primarily to LBHI's recovery, recoveries from LBIE and Lehman Brothers' finance. And going forward, although there will be fewer matters to bring before the court, remaining matters are less likely to be resolved consensually and more likely to require judicial resolution, the report said.
0: So that seems to be an indication that the low-hanging fruit has basically been picked in terms of sources of recoveries for the LBHI case. The plan administrator is also pursuing downstream claims against mortgage loan sellers, arguing that those sellers agreed to indemnify Lehman for losses resulting from breaches of representations and warranties of mortgage loan contracts. Uh, before Lehman packaged the loans for securitization or sale to other third parties.
3: So I guess essentially that means that even if LBHI may be liable for certain mortgage breaches, they can also turn around and recover from the downstream originators of those mortgages. Um, You know, it's interesting that uh, the so-called toxic mortgages from uh, a decade ago were still uh, such a big key issue in the Lehman litigations even today. Um, So we'll continue to follow uh, these cases and uh, think about how to apply the lessons learned in this historic bankruptcy. Uh, Karen, thank you very much for serving double duty today. Um, Appreciate it. And uh, back to you, Stephen.
1: Thank you, Mark. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Stephen Opper, and this has been The Week in Reorg.